We're so thankful for the life we have in Christ. <clears throat> We're so thankful for Christ and his gospel. Thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us that you provided such a sweet treasure to us. Lord, be with us as we come to it this morning. We pray that our efforts here would have their intended effect, that it would work towards increasing our love for Jesus Christ, our desire to proclaim you to the nations, and to love each other well. Lord, we need your help in this venture, so we want to express our neediness and dependence upon you for these things. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> David Brainerd, I'm sure some of you are familiar with him. He was a missionary to Native Americans. He wrote in his diary on April 27, 1742, Oh, my sweet Savior, oh, my sweet Savior, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. If I had had a thousand lives, my soul would gladly have laid them all down at once to have been with Christ. How about you? Is that the beat of your heart? Do you truly love King Jesus? Have you asked yourself that question lately? I think it's a great question for us to consider especially during this time of year, Christmas season, little logos and things up, Jesus is the reason for the season. And in light of eternity, I'm not aware of a better question, more important question than we could ask ourselves. Do you, do I, do we as a church love Jesus Christ? And it's a good question for us to consider because it's really at the heart the center, the core of Christianity. It's central to all true and saving faith. There is no salvation without some kind of love for Jesus Christ. And a love for Jesus Christ, as we'll see, is so important that if our church loses its love for Christ, then we cease to be a church. We could still gather, but in God's eyes, um, we would be something other than a church. And so I think that it's a good question for us to pause and consider from time to time, personally and corporately. Do you, do I, <clears throat> do we truly love Jesus Christ? If you'd like to turn to the book of Revelation, we'll be looking at chapters, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 this morning. As you're turning there, before we get to chapter 2, let me go ahead and read some from chapter 1 to set the context. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. So from these first several verses, we can see that this is a letter from the apostle John to seven churches in Asia, that area of modern-day Turkey. He's relating to them the, the vision the Lord Jesus gave him while in exile for the name of Christ on the island of Patmos. The letter, we think, was probably written around 95 AD, which was during Emperor Domitian's reign. Church historian Justo Gonzalez explains that during that time, several ancient writers affirmed that there were many martyrs. 
And a letter that the church in Rome addressed to the Corinthians speaks of the continuous and unexpected evils which have come upon us. So that's the, the context of John's letter, suffering, persecution of some sort because of Christ, on account of Christ. <clears throat> in Revelation 1, 9 through 20, as we read and look there, the main essence or thrust of John's words, really for the entire book, center around the sovereign reign and, and power of Jesus Christ, the high king. This vision, this revelation to the seven churches begins with this high view of Jesus Christ and is maintained throughout the letter. So in verse 16, for example, we read of Christ. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So it's this sovereign one, this powerful king who speaks to these seven churches. And in our text this morning, we're going to be looking at this high king's commendation, rebuke, and vision for the church in Ephesus. The overall goal being encouragement, which has direct application for us as well. So let's go ahead and read Revelation 2, verses 1 through 3 again, and first look at the king's commendation. <clears throat> Verse 1 again says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The first church that Jesus addresses is the church in Ephesus. In Acts 19, we learn that Paul spent over two years there. And as verse 9 explains, he reasoned daily in the hall of Ternus with disciples from that town. Verse 10 explains his teaching continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And then later on in Acts 19, we learn that, uh, that Paul was driven out of Ephesus when Demetrius, the silversmith, uh, took issue with the plethora of Christian conversions because they were affecting his idol-making business. He was losing money. And so it's this same church, the one that dwelt in the middle of all of this, this, this mega center of, of pagan worship that Jesus first addresses. And we see that Jesus addresses the angel of the church there's some dispute over the identity of these angels. In Greek, the word simply means messenger. And in Scripture, there are examples of, of both human and divine messengers. In the book of Revelation, though, the predominant references to divine messengers, or, or we translate it as angels. But even so, here, uh, the likely reference, I think, is to human messengers because angels are nowhere in Scripture given leadership over, over churches. But... Uh, all that aside, really, what we know for sure is that this charge is directed to the church in Ephesus. And if you just look down there at verse 7 of chapter 2, you also see that although the address is to the church of Ephesus, its contents are to be received by all the churches. So all the, the specific details here apply to the church in Ephesus. The principles, principles apply to all of the churches. And we see it's Jesus who is speaking. Uh, he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. 
backing up chapter 1, verse 20, explains there that the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches, and the lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus holds these messengers in his right hand, I think signifying that they're under his control. It's highlighting his sovereign power. He walks among the churches. He's inspecting them. He's observing them. He's present with them. This is probably an allusion to Leviticus 26, 12, where God says, and I will walk among you and will be your God. You should be my people. The implication is that Jesus is clearly God and he is the head of the church. He shed his blood for them. He is intimately aware of their activities and cares how things go. This address should cause the church in Ephesus, because of these realities, to stand up, take special notice. It should invoke some holy fear. The commander-in-chief is inspecting his troops, and as such, he bestows upon them a commendation. This is a big deal. And here we see that they're praised for their doctrine, their discernment, their durability, their ability to resist going against the flow. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. These believers are in, in, enduring patiently. They've not caved in to society's wicked ways. They have resisted well and have refused to compromise their morals. They can't bear or endure with those who are evil. And they've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Apparently, false apostles sought to force their views on this church. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 of this very thing happening. When Paul visited them for the last time in verse 29, he soberly stated, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, therefore be alert. And it would appear that they, they listened to Paul. They heeded his warning. <clears throat> they resisted the world's pressure to conform. And their labor in this effort is described as toilsome. They didn't tolerate false apostles. They tested their doctrine. It seems they measured the false apostles' teaching against Paul's. And the rest of Scripture found their teaching to be false. And so they ran them off. They didn't tolerate them. And then Jesus says, I know you are enduring patiently. And bearing up for my name's sake, or we could say because of my name, and you have not grown weary. So Jesus commends them for their patient endurance. They are holding out under the most difficult of circumstances. And then from verse 6, if we skip down there and the mention of the Nicolaitans, it would seem that there was some pressure on this church to compromise with the culture in order to lessen their suffering lessen their persecution. But they steadfastly refused. They did not waver. They played the man. In short, these churches had right doctrine. They exercised solid discernment and proved to be durable. And for these efforts, they received this commendation. Brothers and sisters, these characteristics are exemplary for any church. <clears throat> we should guard our lives and our doctrine closely. We should be unswerving in our loyalty to Scripture. We should care about every jot and tittle. Doctrine matters. 
And we should be leery of any teaching that doesn't line up with the text. We should be suspicious of any teaching that erodes the inerrancy of Scripture. All this pleases our King. And much of the opposition is going to come from within and around the so-called church. Those who claim to be apostles but are not. We need to sift their teaching with the word of God, not be afraid to call it what it is, false, untrue. And this is a never-ending chore for the church of Jesus Christ. It's a never-ending chore. Uh, There is a, a constant and steady flow of false apostles and prophets trying to infiltrate the church whether physically or or through their writings. The latest theological fads and philosophies are always floating around. All of these writings claim to be orthodox. None of them are are saying, hey, we're blasphemers, heretics. They're all trying to pass themselves off as orthodox. They all claim to provide some new revelation or some new insight that's going to unlock the secrets of the Christian life and take you to some deeper, greater level of spirituality, but their teachings don't line up with the text. Their center, their core is off. They are false. And then to top it all off, there's pressure on today's church to adjust to the times. Uh, There is this push from society to stop being so picky about everything, be more relevant, be more tolerant, be more inclusive. There are many who are calling on the church in our day and age to embrace everything and anything, and many churches are caving under all of this pressure. Brothers and sisters, we can't do this. We can't do that. We must care about doctrine. We must be discerning. We must prove durable in this battle. And so far, I think that Kenwood has endured these challenges well. We care about doctrine. We Sing truth, pray truth, preach truth. Uh, We've upheld and maintained the biblical view of marriage despite much opposition. We speak out against abortion and all of its evils. We condemn racism but refuse to embrace a social gospel against much opposition. In short, I believe that we have been discerning and we have been durable in this battle Excel still more. That battle is not going to go away. It's steady. Continue to strive for right doctrine and biblical discernment. Persist in going against the flow. And, and, and so in this way, be like the church in Ephesus. But only in this way, because here comes the rebuke, and it's a doozy. Jesus continues, and in verse 4 says, But I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus doesn't mince words. Doctrine and discernment are good, but they're not enough. In and through all this patient endurance and orthodoxy, all of this good stuff, this church somehow had abandoned their first love. They ceased to love Jesus Christ preeminently. Now, some people see this rebuke as rather nebulous, kind of, kind of vague. They say we can't really know for sure who is the object of this love and or the exact essence of this love. Uh, so some say this love is a love for the lost. 
Others say it's a love for God in general, and still others say you know, it's a love specifically for one another, uh, for the church. Really beyond the scope of what I hope to do here this morning to debunk those views. Uh, so let me just say that I firmly believe this is talking about a preeminent and a zealous love for Jesus Christ and his person. And I say that for several reasons. Uh, one of the first rules of hermeneutics, understanding, interpreting Scripture, is to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And as we do that, with regards to the object of this love, our minds go to texts like Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Jesus reiterated that charge for us in Matthew twenty two thirty seven when he responded to the question regarding which commandment was the greatest. And he said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. We note that Jesus calls loving God the first commandment, which is the same Greek word that's used in our text this morning, that word first. So at least our mind goes there when Jesus reiterates that. And a literal rending of the Greek text is this, but I have this against you, that you have sent away your love, the first one. The Greek word first can mean first in sequence or first in rank. Either way, I think this helps us see that this first love is this love for God that is to be first, that is, that is to be above all, this to be preeminent. God is a jealous God. He demands this priority in the hearts of his people. None other is deserving. Only he is worthy. And I believe those who were familiar with the Old Testament, the church in the first century, their Bible was you know, predominantly, probably Paul's writings, but the Old Testament, they would easily be able to make the connection uh, when presented with the question, who is the object of this love? I think it would go to you know, obvious places. And then we see that this love is connected to Christ because we have the teaching in Matthew 10, 37, where Jesus says, and I think they had the Gospels as well available, but where Jesus says, you know, whoever loves, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so Jesus, just like the father, demands a place of preeminence in the heart of his followers, which is a clear claim to deity, but it also establishes the truth that this first love is a love for God, which in the Trinitarian sense is a very clear love for Jesus Christ. And then we have Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and similar texts that, that I preached on recently, and other, other texts that clearly put all of this together for us and, and take out any guesswork. And so Jesus is the object of this love. And then we see that the essence of this love is, is zeal, or the essence of it is a zealousness. The word love here is a standard word for love in the New Testament, word you, I'm sure, have heard, agape. But when it's connected to Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 37, Deuteronomy 6, 4, we see that love for Christ is to be an exclusive love. It's a zealous love, which is to say that it's a love that is to have no rivals. In chapter 1, Christ is defined as one whose face was like the sun shining in full strength. His glory mirrors that of the Shekinah glory of Yahweh. Again, Jesus is God. The text is teaching us that. John falls down at his feet as though dead when confronted with Christ's glory. And as God, amazingly so, this one demonstrated his love for us, as Romans 5.8 explains, that while we were 
still sinners. Christ, this glorious one, died for us. Isn't that amazing? And so we're to love him because of his glory that's off the charts, and we're to love him because all that he has accomplished on our behalf. He is the Messiah God. He is the long-awaited, anointed king, and he's also our savior. Therefore, it's absolutely right that he demands this preeminent love. It's right that he demands a zealous love. That's what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 13, 44, when he told the parable of the kingdoms. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus is the object of this first love, and it is zealous to the core. It's a sell all you have and follow Jesus kind of love. In John 14, Jesus states several times that to love him is to keep his commandments. So in John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In Matthew 5, 29, Jesus taught his followers to deal radically with sin. And in its context, it seems Jesus was teaching his followers you know, those who are to cherish and love him uh, to such a degree that they're going to gladly go to extremes in order to avoid sin. Uh, their love for their king will be such that they don't want anything to interrupt their sweet fellowship with this king. So this is an obey at all costs kind of love. It's zealously obedient. It's preeminent in priority and earnest in its commitment. And it is relational to the core. And this church at Ephesus had ceased to love Christ in this way. They stopped valuing him above all that they valued. And a loss of love for Christ will show itself in a loss of love for people, believers and unbelievers. And so that's why I think really the debate on the object of this love is a moot point. It's all. But the focus is Christ. If Jesus is not supremely loved, then the desire to see the saints conform into Christ's image is going to be non-existent. If Jesus is not supremely loved, then Christ's supremacy and gospel glory will not be zealously proclaimed to the nations. When a love for Jesus Christ is not motivating those works, then those works will cease. They must be motivated by a love for Jesus Christ. The Ephesian church was doctrinally sound. They were discerning. They didn't conform to the world, but they had abandoned their first love. They did all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Apparently, their doctrinal purity, discernment, and durability were disconnected from their love of Christ. These things had become a duty rather than a privilege. They were fueled by sheer willpower rather than by Holy Spirit-empowered love for Christ's person and work. They had endured. They, they hadn't given up. But apparently, it looks like they forgot why they were enduring and why they were holding up. It appears they saw doctrinal purity and discernment as an end itself rather than a means to an end. It seems that their efforts to be unstained by the world became a work rather than a fruit. 
J.C. Ryle, in his excellent book that I would commend to you if you're looking for a, a good audible listen entitled Practical Religion, he speaks at length about Christian zeal, and I think that what he says there captures the essence of what the Ephesians had abandoned. And talking about the zealous man, the one who loves Christ, the fruit of it, zealousness, he says, the zealous man burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. The, the, the zealous one is the one driven by supreme love for Christ and has a singular focus in life, is not distracted, throws off everything that hinders to follow in Christ's footsteps. And obviously this zeal must be informed by scripture and, and righteousness and have Christ as its object. You know, we're not talking about a misplaced zeal. We're talking about godly zeal, the fruits of a sincere love for Jesus. J.C. Rowell goes on and explains how this is a zeal, an earnest love for our own growth and personal holiness. The zealous one feels that there is nothing which ought not to be done in order to keep a close walk with God. He'll make any sacrifice if only he can attain a closer communion with Jesus. Such zeal will make a man hate everything which God hates, such as drunkenness, slavery, infanticide, and long to sweep it from the face of the earth. It'll make a man burn with desire to enlighten the darkness which covers the souls of multitudes and bring every man, woman, and child he sees to the knowledge of the gospel. Only a love for Jesus Christ can fuel missions. Truly. I believe this is the kind of love the Ephesian church had lost. They'd lost their true passion for Christ. Love for Jesus no longer motivated their works. Their zeal for his glory had faded. Sweet communion with him was no longer their supreme aim in life. Brothers and sisters, how are we doing as a church? Like I said, I think we're doctrinally sound. I think that we're discerning and growing in discernment. We haven't gone with the flow, but how is our love? How is our zeal? Do we love Jesus Christ supremely? Sound doctrine is a means to an end. It's not the end itself. James tells us the demons have some right doctrine. Right doctrine is not enough. The end itself is Christ, a supreme love for his person. That's the goal and motive of sound doctrine and discernment. That's the, the goal and motive of durability. The goal of sound doctrine is to treasure Jesus above husbands and wives and children and hobbies and careers and lands and, and homes and peace and comfort and health and education and prestige and titles and material things and entertainment. Is that the aim, the motivation of our doctrinal purity? Is that the goal of our discernment? Is that why we study? I've met several students here who, who came to Louisville zealous for Christ, but then settled for intellectual prowess. 
Is our study fueled by, and does it result in a greater love for Jesus Christ and his glory? Does it result in a greater desire to see our brothers and sisters in Christ conform to Christ's image? Does it result in an increased zeal to see our king's glory spread across the globe? How are we doing in our love for Christ? And then how are you doing in your love for Christ? Right? Individual believers make up the church, so as the individual goes, so goes the church. Do you love Jesus Christ? Are you zealous for his glory? Are you fueled by a love for his person? Is a love for Christ's person and his work what motivates all that you do? If you're prideful or critical or competitive in your spirit towards others, rest assured that is not the fruit of love. This is a text we need to continually keep before our eyes. The problems out there, and there's a plethora of problems out there, they can consume us when it's in here that is our greatest concern. Because, according to this text, it's possible we could maintain and defend sound doctrine. We could do a great job of pushing against the flow out there. It's possible that we could exercise great discernment It's possible we could continue to push back against worldly philosophies, steadfastly go against the flow of this sensuous and and wicked society, and yet not love Jesus Christ. It's possible that we could do church and and to do it well from certain perspectives and certain, certain checkpoints, but all the while, in our heart of hearts, treasure other things above Jesus Christ and so receive this rebuke. But I have this against you. that you've abandoned the love you had at first? Are you zealous for Christ? Is he preeminent in your heart? Do you love King Jesus? Which brings us to our last and and final point, the king's vision, the reward of the repentant. Jesus says in verse five, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So here we see that Jesus gives the Ephesian church essentially a two-step solution to the problem. Remember and repent. Both these verbs in the imperative form, they're commands. Remember, repent. And they're to remember from where they have fallen. There was a time when this charge did not describe them. It didn't characterize them. There was a time when their zeal and passion for Jesus Christ was was red hot. And when they bumped shoulders with other believers, they just set them on fire for Christ and his kingdom. They're to remember those days. Maybe just 40 years prior to this writing, some of these believers were on the beaches of Miletus. They wept on Paul's shoulder. Acts 20, 37 describes the beautiful scene. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. 
being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, they would not see his face again. Um, there was no lack of zeal then. It seems their love for Jesus had fueled this tender love and care for Paul. Jesus' rebuke is a charge for them to rem- remember from where they had fallen. And then they're told to repent. This word simply means to change your mind. And the biblical mind is a person's heart. It's the, the core of their being, who they really are. This is a call for a fundamental change in a person's values that leads to a change in their actions, which is highlighted by the Lord's explanation here to do the work she did at first. Their failure to treasure Jesus above all else needs to be rectified immediately. They're to agree with the Lord that their lack of zeal for Christ is sin, confessing that, and that he is right to rebuke them. And then they are to once again love him preeminently. Let her do the works they did at first. Remembering from where they had fallen is an exercise that is intended to rekindle this love for Jesus. When they first came to to Christ, they were zealous. They eagerly listened to Paul's teaching night and day for three years. Acts 19.18 explains that many of those who were now new believers from Ephesus came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Love fueled their zeal. They hungered for the word as a means to an end. They wanted to know how to please their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who had forgiven them of all their sins, forgiven them of this wicked lifestyle of witchcraft and sorcery. The picture in the book of Acts is that they loved Jesus Christ preeminently. And so this call to remember and repent is essentially a call to live in view of the gospel of Jesus Christ on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. It's a call to go back, remember and repent, do the work you did at first. Zealously love Jesus Christ. Because if not, Jesus continues to say in verse 5, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If not, the church in Ephesus, if it doesn't remember and repent, if they fail to maintain this first love, if they allow their love for Jesus Christ to take a backseat to anything, if they love doctrine above Christ, if they love discernment above Christ and knowledge above Christ, if they love any good thing above Christ, then they'll cease to be a church. Jesus will remove their lampstand. And again, chapter 1, verse 20 explains that the lampstand represents a church. Jesus says if they stay on this present course, the Ephesian church will be removed. They'll no longer be a church. Remember, a church, that word in the Greek is a word that means a gathering. And in the New Testament context, it's a gathering of Christ's followers. That's what a church is. And Christ's followers are defined as those who love Christ to some degree. And so if they lose their first love, then they cease to be a church. They're not going to be a gathering of Christ's followers. 
And that's why it's so important to individually and corporately consider this charge. Churches that continue to meet but cease to be a church, they didn't just get there overnight. It's a little by little erosion. One person just stops caring about loving Christ. They're more into ministry. They're more into whatever. And then little by little, that starts to infect. And the whole group, people don't love Jesus. They cease to be a church, which means the Holy Spirit's not indwelling anybody that's gathering. It's a gathering devoid of the Holy Spirit. When churches begin to see doctrine and service and morality as ends themselves, when these things are fueled by something other than a love for Jesus, they cease to be a church. When they lose sight of the gospel and their first love, they cease to be a church. Jesus Christ, who is ever among them, will remove their lampstand. But then Jesus ends with this. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus serves the Ephesians an encouragement sandwich here. He encourages them, rebukes them, encourages them. It's my opinion that when he talks about the Nicolaitans, this is a hint that he omnisciently knows they will repent. They're not apostate. Not yet. And this is something that we have here, like what we see in the warning passages of the book of Hebrews. God's people heed God's word. Followers of Jesus Christ hear his voice and follow him. They obey him. That's what his sheep do. They hear the voice of their shepherd. They obey and they follow. True believers, when they hear these words, they're going to remember and repent. If it is the case that, that they've left their first love, Jesus' words here will serve as a correction to their spiritual health. Something like this. If the doctor says that you need to immediately stop smoking or you're going to be dead by the end of the week, what are you going to do? If you trust the doctor's words that he's telling you the truth and you love life, you're going to listen. So when Jesus tells the church, love me or die, those who love Jesus, God's true people, will listen. True believers will heed this rebuke. Apostates won't. They'll be mad that I even decided to preach on Revelation 2, 1 through 7. But this is simply King Jesus, kindly, mercifully, authoritatively, graciously, loving his people. His people who are wayward here will heed this instruction and change course. They'll listen up. They'll listen to what the Spirit says to the churches and heed the warning. And so they will conquer and eat of the tree of life, which is to say they will persevere to the end. They'll one day be with God in paradise. They will enjoy uninterrupted bliss with their creator, God, and Savior for all of eternity. God will see to it. But he uses means. And Irenaeus, an early church leader, tells us in his early second century extra-biblical writings that the Ephesian church did heed this warning. They remembered and repented. Brothers and sisters, our 
our course is set for this exact same paradise. But sometimes, like the church in Ephesus, we get off course, we lose sight. We get distracted from our destination. Sometimes we get confused and steer our ship the wrong direction. And so I believe we need to seriously consider Christ's words here. And I think we need to do this regularly. And if they do apply to us, and if they apply to us, then we need to heed our Savior's warning. We need to remember and repent. Do the things we did at first. We need to go back and, and uh, remember that awe and that fear that we felt when we suddenly realized and light bulbs came on regarding our enormous guilt and sinfulness in light of such a holy and righteous God, when we had one of those moments where we really understood clearly that we were walking on holy ground to even pray and call God Father. We need to remember that moment when we clearly understood that Jesus Christ had died in our place and hung on the cross for my sin and so freed me from eternal condemnation and guilt. And so the realities and truth of Romans 8, 1, are mine forever. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to remember the elation and the, and the carefree joys of those days. We need to remember when, when eternity was so real to us that, that we could almost taste it. We need to remember when we salivated for sweet times of fellowship with Christ in his word. We need to remember when we longed to get alone and commune with our heavenly father alone in and through prayer. And we need to go back to those days when we gladly surrendered our entire being and possessions to Christ in his kingdom and said, Lord, take my life whenever, wherever. When we used to care about our media intake, the things we listened to, the things we watched, and so on and so forth, because we didn't want anything to, to mess with our love for Christ and to pour cold water on our zeal in loving other believers and proclaiming the gospel. We need to go back and do the things we did at first. We need to take inventory and ensure that our works are motivated and fueled by a zealous love for Jesus Christ and not sleep until that is rectified in our hearts. Oh, my sweet Savior, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. If I had had a thousand lives, my soul would gladly have laid them all down at once to have been with Christ. That's the heart of the Christian faith. That's to be the reason why we do what we do. I pray it's our heart. I pray that it's the heart of every single person that is here this morning. Because our existence as a church depends on it. Do you 
do I, do we truly, sincerely, passionately love Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this challenging, encouraging text. I thank you for loving us enough to bring these kinds of texts to our remembrance and scattering them throughout your word. Lord, my desire is that we be known as a gathering of Christ's followers that are zealous and passionate for their love for Jesus Christ, reflected by a deep love for each other that is persevering through ups and downs and hard times, and a zealous love to proclaim Christ to the nations. Grow us in these ways. We need your Spirit's help in this. Increase our love for Jesus. Help us to encourage each other in this direction. Cause us not to waste precious moments of fellowship, particularly during these times of COVID, on silly, fruitless things. But help us to understand what's at stake. Lord, may this be our aim always. And we express our utter dependence upon you to do this in us. For your glory, Christ's exaltation, and Lord, we know that this is where our extreme joy is located. Amen.